My research is in the broad area of public communication, which is advertising, public relations, government and political communication. Specifically in that, I look at two areas. Uh, first area is evaluation of campaigns, because it's very important to judge the effectiveness. The second area is a relatively new area where I'm looking at organisational listening, because so much focus is on organisations speaking, organisations running campaigns to express their voice, but I'm finding organisations are not very good at listening. Evaluation of communication is very important because worldwide uh, companies and governments spend more than half a billion dollars a year on advertising. Just in, in, in Australia alone, state governments spend a hundred million dollars a year. So whether that's effective is very, very important. So evaluation is critically important to avoid wastage of taxpayers and investors' money. Uh, and I believe organisation listening is very important because I think what we're seeing with the Trump election in the US, uh, the Brexit vote in the UK, hung parliaments in Australia is that people are dissatisfied with a lot of organisations and one of the reasons we're finding for that is that these organisations do a lot of talking to people and are not listening adequately. begin this podcast by sharing a clip uh, from the person who literally wrote the book on organizational listening. And so that clip that you just heard was by Professor Jim McNamara, and he is a professor at the School of Communication at the University of Technology in Sydney. And his research has been how in how effective organizations, government, businesses, nonprofits, politicians, how well do they listen? And his research has focused on how well do they do it and also contains information on how to do it better. So your chapter for this week, um, listening in organizations, will go into some of the research that he offers. And I also have a couple of added resources in this week that you'll get to hear directly from Professor McNamara on listening. One of the interesting things that McNamara found in his research is that organizations do about 90% of their communication speaking to, so talking, being the sender, whether it's through emails or advertising or memos, you know, depending on the type of organization it is, but it's going out and only about 10% listening. And that's why we see companies that have made missteps because they're out of touch, because they're just putting out a message. Um, they're deciding what the message should be, um, not listening. I don't know if anyone has ever heard of the new Coke, but at one point, it's like 20, 30 years ago, Coke decided to change its recipe. And uh, yeah, they hadn't listened <laughs> ahead of time. So they put it out, changed the whole recipe, did away with however Coke tastes now, that's not what it had. It ended up tasting a lot more like Pepsi. People did not like it. People who like Coke like Coke. They did not like the new Coke. So they had to do a big mea culpa and undo all of that. Obviously, we still have Coke, so they survived. But that's just one example um, out of many when we have organizations that don't listen to their clientele. Some of the content from this chapter may be familiar to you. 
we're going to borrow some information from some of the other courses you may have had. So if you had a course in organizational communication or a course in public relations or a course in marketing, some of that content is going to come into this week. And we're going to look at it through the lens of what does it take to listen as an organization. So we're going to twist what it means to listen because most of the other chapters, we're actually talking about the physicality of listening with our ears. You know, we hear sound, um, it goes in and we have to process it. Uh, we've talked about it in different, in, in different situations. But listening in this chapter means something a little different because we're talking about an organization. And of course, an organization doesn't have literal ears, physical ears. They have lots of ears. They have collective ears. Uh, and, and they also have to have a f means to collect information and to listen. And so with lots of social media like Twitter, um, there is an opportunity for organizations to get almost immediate feedback, but that didn't used to be the case. It used to take, a, you know, writing a letter and then hoping that they read it and hoping that they get back. I remember we checked into a hotel in Chicago and my daughter tweeted something. She did not hashtag the hotel at all, She, but she mentioned the hotel, but it was not hashtag, wasn't anything. And within minutes, maybe not even minutes, she was getting a message back from the concierge of that hotel. And so they have bots set up to scour the internet and see if anyone's saying anything about them and collecting what they are saying. You know, Jim McNamara talks about how we can use technology in order to collect and see what's information is saying. How many times have we got on hold and we've said this phone call may be recorded for training purposes, but what has ever happened with those recordings? Um, you know, what can, what have they learned? A lot of times they've just sat there unlistened to. If anyone complained, they could go back and see whether the customer service agent was polite or not. But all of this information was sitting there that could inform the company or organization um, how it's doing and what the needs of its customers are. So that's one example with technology. We do have the ability to give feedback to very large organizations in a way we never have before. But the question is, how attuned are they to be listening? So as we begin, we're going to take a look. What is an organization? It's a, it's a dynamic system in which individuals engage in a collective effort in order to accomplish a goal. And so we come together. I'm going to give you a definition of what the goals are for USM in a few minutes here. So just as individual listening skills are important for a person's success, the willingness of an organization to value listening to its employees, to its customers, to outside groups, to anyone who has um, an interest, um, they need to value it first before they're going to do it. And so, and one of the things they found about organizational listening is it can improve morale, it makes for happier employees, it makes for happier customers, and that can lead to a healthier bottom line. So we begin this chapter with a little bit of organizational communication 101. And so as the textbook goes on to explain um, what does it mean to be an organization and what are its components. And so... Um, so take a look and you'll see that the organizational concepts of purpose, mission, culture, and climate. 
Um, and so have a good understanding of what those are and how these or organizations can exhibit listening. In order to be an effective organization, the organization should have a purpose and goal, and it is helpful to have mission statements. Some of the organizations I've been involved in, they've spent a lot of time uh, developing their mission statements, and they often go back to those mission statements frequently to make sure that they are doing, in fact, what it states. So if the mission statement, if you never look at it, never see it, and then you look at it and go, okay, that's just such a, you know, that's just a bunch of words. Um, I don't really see that in the day-to-day -day of working here, or I don't see that in the day-to-day -day of being a customer here. So John Bryson talks about mission statements should answer six questions. Um, who are we? What are the basic needs or problems for which we exist? How do we respond to those needs? How should we respond to key stakeholders? What are the core values? And um, what makes us unique? And so those are the things that mission statements should have. And so uh, the discussion thread for this week is going to uh, have you look up some mission statements and evaluate them. So look for that. Let me read the University of Southern Maine's mission statement. So here we go. The University of Southern Maine, Northern New England's outstanding public, regional, comprehensive university is dedicated to providing students with a high quality, accessible, affordable education. Through its undergraduate, graduate, and professional programs, USM faculty members educate future leaders in the liberal arts and sciences, engineering and technology, health and social services, education, business, law, and public service. Distinguished for their teaching, research, scholarly publication, and creative activity, the faculty are committed to fostering a spirit of critical inquiry and civic participation. USM embraces academic freedom for students, faculty, and staff, and advocates diversity in all aspects of its campus life and academic work. It supports sustainable development, environmental stewardship, and community involvement. As a Center for Discovery, Scholarship, and Creativity, USM provides resources for the state, the nation, and the world. So there we go. When I looked at it, I think this is about 15 years old. It'll be interesting to see. Uh, actually, there there is a committee that's working on tweaking the mission statement. And so um, you can tell me, <laughs> how are we doing? That's its mission. Do you think we... Do you think we live up to it? I hope so. Um, I don't know if I've mentioned this in class before, but I got my undergraduate degree from USM. I transferred in as a junior and got my degree in communication. So me coming back here to Maine and to USM is a full circle experience. But anyway, from the USM that I knew as a student, um, I, I knew that it strived uh, to meet those things. But I will say, um, USM has just got better and better o over the years. And as far as, um, listening to its, you know, its students, um, the public, I think it's done a lot better. I know that as, as you probably all know, the president, um, sends out weekly communication. So that's going, um, externally, but from what I can tell, um, he and his, um, staff are pretty receptive to, to listening to the views of students. And so you all are the experts to know um, 
<laughs> how much of that happens. I hope it does, but uh, I think uh, USM has just come a long way. Um, also, let me just state, it's kind of a little off topic. Um, there's always been that problematic of the two campuses because they were at one time two separate schools. And, you know, what do we do with that? Because um, they had their own identities and then they were together. But I will say that with um, the internet and technology, because when I worked there, after I graduated, I worked there for four years, we didn't even have email. And so somebody did went around to every office twice a day and, and shared memos. So, there, yeah, there wasn't even email. I know that makes me sound really old. But um, I don't know. I just feel like the campus does seem more united and together because everyone has access to the same information at the same time. And of course, um, in the last year, we're all virtual anyway. But anyway, um, that's where we are. I just clapped. Um, that's where we are with uh, USM and its mission statement. I wanted to bring in a topic that was not in your book in this chapter. Um, it's probably been in other classes that you've had, and that's the topic of emotional labor. I know we cover it in nonverbal communication, so let me define it. Um, emotional labor refers to a process by which employees must manage their emotions to meet organizational rules for emotional displays or norms concerning the appropriate emotional reactions in specific situations. Two emotional labor strategies have been identified, surface acting, refers to employees' modification of their observable, observable expressions in order to hear, adhere to expectations about emotional expression. So that's the put on a happy face, you're faking it, faking it till you make it. And then two, deep acting involves modification of both felt and underlying emotions to adhere to rules about facial expression. And so that's when you fake it and you actually make it and you become it and, and you have a different emotion. So we are hired by our bosses and there's an expectation of professionalism, friendliness, especially when you're in customer service and on the front line. Um, I, I don't know if any of you are in banking. I think a couple of you are. And there's been some research in what people in banking have to engage in, the type of emotional labor that they have to engage in in order to have that um, face front to the public. Uh, same thing if you're a wait staff, also if you are in a call center and people call in. Um, and I and they call it emotional labor. Labor, in fact, because it takes energy. You can come home exhausted if you have had to either do a lot of surface acting or had to do a lot of deep acting. And so, um, and why? Why is this taking a lot of labor? I'm sorry that they have left this out of the textbook because this comes from listening. You have to listen to your customer, whatever it is. You need to listen. You need to listen critically and carefully to see what their problem is. You know, maybe you were taught to make contact on a feeling level in order to um, tap down some high emotions. So, for example, if somebody comes in and they're, they're irate, you could say, wow, I can... I, I sense that you're really frustrated. I see you're frustrated. So that's one of the things that they train us as someone who's done customer service in doing it. And, and that kind of brings things down. So listening um, is such a part of emotional labor. And so if you've had to do a lot of listening, uh, you know, in a particular day, problem solving with customers, you probably come home 
exhausted. And so here's a little clip that I will share uh, more information on this uh, concept of emotional labor. I'm Adam Grant, and this is Work Life, my podcast with Ted. I'm an organizational psychologist. I study how to make work not suck. In this show, I'm inviting myself into some truly unusual places where they've mastered something I wish everyone knew about work. Today, emotional work and how to avoid burnout. Thanks to Accenture for sponsoring this episode. We all have to manage our own emotions in our jobs. Think of a time you were really annoyed by a colleague, but masked your feelings so you could get the job done. Or when you marched into your boss's office to ask for a raise, but kept your cool so you could negotiate. At work, we also manage other people's emotions. Whether inspiring a team about a boring project or talking your frustrated colleague out of quitting. And in some jobs, managing emotions is the job. In the U.S. and many developed economies around the world, about 8 out of 10 people work in service jobs. The human touch is hard to automate. We want an actual person on the other end of the line. And even if you're not in one of those jobs, you're engaged in a service encounter every time you get a haircut, visit the doctor, or order a coffee. Every one of those service jobs has expectations about what emotions to show. And probably had moments when you just faked an emotion. You plastered on a smile. You tried to sound cheerful, even when you weren't feeling it. I always think of the, the flight attendants that have to say goodbye to each and every passenger that leaves the plane, right? Ugh. Goodbye. Goodbye now. Goodbye now. This is Alicia Grandy, an industrial organizational psychologist at Penn State. She studies how people manage emotions, something she got a real taste of early on when she worked at Starbucks. I would find myself, despite being somewhat, you know, enjoying people and sociable, Completely exhausted after a part-time shift at Starbucks, making being the barista, and I didn't really understand why. My face would hurt, like I would literally hurt from from all the interacting and the smiling and the the emotional labor I was doing. But I didn't know that's what it was called. And at the same time, I took this class um, just for fun, where I was assigned to read the classic "Managed Heart" by Arlie Hochschild, and that's when the light bulbs went off, and I was like, ah. I'm doing emotional labor. What is emotional labor? It's kind of like when you get a gift and you don't really like it and you have to still kind of smile and act nice because otherwise your Aunt Bernadette would be offended. But you have to do that all day long. And not only that, but it's explicitly part of your job. It's tied to your wages and outcomes. And if you don't do it, there are consequences. Um, like you could lose your job or you could get in trouble. And uh, it's with strangers for the most part. It seems like the easiest way to cope is to tell yourself, well, this is just my job. I'll pretend to be this person in this role when I'm at work. That's called surface acting. It's wearing a mask that you take off at the end of the day. It feels like the simple way to distance yourself from the role. But it creates a sense of being inauthentic, which can take a real toll. I had the experience while working at Starbucks of a, of a customer saying something inappropriate. And then you have this feeling within you of like, but I'm supposed to be friendly and nice. And yet inside, I'm really upset. 
I've got dissonance between my feelings and my what I'm supposed to show. And so you just put on that expression. You have to hide and or push down uh, the feelings you're actually having and just get through that situation. The problem is when you're engaging in that surface acting repeatedly. You know, it, doing it one time with your your aunt uh, Bernadette might might not be a big deal, but doing it every <laughs> you know constantly with with customers over and over again because you're always dealing with customers who are upset, right, or patients who are upset. Having to do that constantly is where we see uh, the the problem. The problem is burnout. Sure, it's exhausting to deal with rude customers all day. But how exhausting depends on the way you approach emotional labor. There's substantial evidence that people who do a lot of surface acting end up feeling more emotionally drained and stressed. The more we surface act, the more we're likely to drink. Um, it also is linked to, to not helping out as much at home because you're exhausted. Um, so there's, there's a lot of potential downsides. But there's an alternative to surface acting. Deep acting. Instead of putting on a mask, you actually try to feel the emotion. That way it comes out naturally. Deep acting is just the modifying of your own feelings to appear in the way that you're expected to appear. So it sounds like you're saying, instead of faking it till you make it, feel it so you don't have to fake it. Yeah, so there, there's certainly evidence to support that if you can try to feel it, uh, then you won't need to fake it and that there's less costs to feeling it. Um, where deep acting does seem to have more benefits in terms of how you appear, how you come across to others, um, and fewer costs to the self. So the best scripts are the ones that help you help without forcing you to put on a mask. Research shows that the organizations with the happiest customers are actually the ones that put employees first. They value relationships inside the workplace, not just outside with the public. Because the emotions people experience on the job have a huge impact on the customer's experience. When employees are treated well, they naturally treat the customer well. It's not acting. They really care. Emotional work is undervalued. In a world where many jobs can be automated or outsourced, care and communication skills are becoming more vital than ever before. So every time you're on the other side of a service interaction, remember that the whole emotional burden doesn't have to be on the provider. Emotional labor is hard work, and it deserves empathy. Every time you act like a jerk, you're making someone else's job more difficult. And that's going to spill over to affect every other customer that day. It may be their job to help us, but there's usually something we can do to help them. It's always wise to pay attention to the wake you create. As you can see, the concept of emotional labor pertains to listening and organizational listening because primarily that's what we do with the public when we are working, when we are responding to our customers is we have to listen to their needs, listen to what they're saying, you know, whether we are waiting on them at a restaurant or in a bank or uh, at a call center or anything else that we do. Um, we have to listen for teachers, we're listening to the students, we're listening to the administration, we're listening to the parents, a lot of listening. Um, and there's a lot of content. And sometimes the content is factual, sometimes it's um, intense or emotional. 
and we have to try to respond in the best way, most professional way, uh, you know, possible, because, you know, whether we work for L.L. Bean or for Hannaford or wherever, they are paying us to be in a good mood and they are paying us to respond to their customers and they want it done in a certain way. And so just saying it, doesn't it sound exhausting? And that's why we are uh, we do come home exhausted sometimes. Certainly, emotional labor does happen in relationships, you know, within our families. But at work, it's where it is most exhausting because we're there for eight hours a day or longer. Um, and so we're doing the same thing over and over. And we also don't know when we talk to one person, um, that interaction goes really well. We talk to the next person and um, they're a little prickly, um, and then <laughs> talk to the next person, and they're downright rude, and yet we are being paid to keep that smile on our face and keep listening and to uh, respond in a professional way. So I felt like I really wanted to add this concept of emotional labor to this uh, to this podcast and to this section for this week. I do have other clips, videos, audios, uh, in this week, and then there is a one pager, and then we do have the discussion threads. So um, I look forward to this week, and I hope that it's enlightening. I know I always keep saying, "Oh, this, this is one of my favorite chapters." Oh, this is one of my favorite chapters. But this is, I mean, I, in a week or two, I will tell you probably my two or three or four top favorites um, chapters out of this textbook. But this is this is in my top three or four. Anyway, so have a good week. Uh, I look forward to hearing from you and reading your comments.